Good morning, everybody. How we doing? Good. Me and Paxton, Haley, Heather, thank you all. Band, thanks for, thanks for serving this morning and drawing us to the heart of the Lord. Um, how's everybody doing? We're good? Good. Hey, grab your Bibles and turn to Ezra chapter 7. Ezra 7 is where we're going to be uh, for the majority of today. We're going to talk um, primarily about some of the key aspects of 7 that really give us some insight into Ezra himself, who he is. Um, and, then, and then historically, we'll just kind of walk through briefly a lot of what happens in 8. Um, uh, before we jump into just kind of describing everything that we're going to talk about in God's Word today, uh, I want to give you uh, some insight on something fun that's happening in our community in the next uh, week, actually. Yeah, a week from yesterday. Uh, big Kaboom. Who goes to this? Who's been a part of this before? Right? A number of us. Um, look, I don't know if, about you, but I love fireworks. It's a blast. I love celebrating uh, our freedom, independence. It's, it's a ton of fun. Um, I don't know why that's hilarious. Oh, yeah. I didn't, I didn't even see that. I'm just a dad now, so these things just happen. Um, uh, look, uh, it is a blast. It's going to be a ton of fun. Uh, and, and look, I, I think one of the deep things that, that I'm coming to learn, that I think our, our, our church is coming to learn, to recognize, to understand, uh, is that in order to be a community church, we've got to be a part of this community. Uh, and so for us, we've been asking a lot of questions. What does that look like for Double Oak Community Church to, to really engage the community of Chelsea? What does it look like for us to, to be a part and a core element of, of who Chelsea is and that God would work through us, that we would get to minister the gospel, that we would get to love uh, and, and get connected to people so that they can know Christ and experience life in Him. What does that look like? Well, one of the things that looks like is engaging with the big activities and things that happen here in Chelsea, and the big kaboom is one of them. So um, there's tons of food vendors uh, and all that kind of stuff. There, there, there's going to be vendors of all types there, uh, but we decided we wanted to do something that, to the best of our ability, we felt like would engage a number of people. Uh, and so we have this little area that's going to be uh, set up, and we're calling it the Big Kebab. Um, it is uh, a lot of bubble machines, uh, and there are going to be tons of bubbles. Um, that might sound really, really silly, uh, but it's going to be a ton of fun, and I think here's what it's going to do. One, um, it's going to be something free for kids and families to engage with. Uh, number two, and this is my favorite part, they shoot out like 4,500 bubbles every minute or something like that, I think we decided. Um, so it'll just be a hilarious amount of bubbles. Uh, but thirdly, look, this, this gives us, our church, a presence, a way to engage, uh, to connect with people at this event. So I know we'll all be out there with our lawn chairs and we'll be listening to music and eating great food and, and getting ready for the fireworks. Uh, but I would encourage you to come kind of be near our uh, hilariously bubble-filled area. Uh, so that we can connect and meet some people. We hope it's going to draw people over and that they'll have questions and maybe wonder why these people are so crazy that they just love bubbles this much. Um, look, we, that's, that's something that we're going to do. I feel like it's going to be a lot more fun than your faces seem to demonstrate uh, that it is. No, genuinely, I'm excited. It's going to be a ton of fun. We're going to have fun with our community. It's going to be great. So I hope to see everybody there Saturday, um, the big field area right here on 280. Uh, and if that's not a clarifying descriptor, uh, just try to go to Winn-Dixie and then realize you can't, and then you'll be there. Um, so we'll see you there Saturday night, I think 530, and then fireworks are at nine. Ezra chapter seven. Um, this series, Return, Rebuild, Renew, uh, it, what we're looking at is a picture of God's people that are returning out of exile. So uh, historically, to kind of back up and, and kind of just briefly give you a short recap, uh, Jeremiah has prophesied that, that God's people, his covenant people who have not been faithful uh, to, to worship him alone, to trust him, uh, to live unto him, they are put into exile. They are allowed, God allows them to be uh, taken captive by Babylon, um, who, who subsequently uh, keeps these people, God's people, there for 70 years, and then Persia takes over Babylon. And so there, there's some language in the text that we're going to read. You'll see those things overlap. Uh, but in chapter 1 of Ezra, we see this King Cyrus uh, make a decree that just as Jeremiah prophesied, that God, God told the people through Jeremiah, God's people are now being drawn back to Jerusalem, back to rebuild the temple. 
Um, one of the things that emerges that we get to see in chapter 3 is, is truly this recognition of this remembrance of what God has done as the foundation is laid and the temple is beginning to be constructed. So all these people come back, the temple is becoming rebuilt. Uh, in chapter 4, we see opposition, opposition to this where politically uh, God's people have been attacked. They've been, there, there's been rumors and things told about them that they're this, um, they're this nation that, that doesn't want to subject itself uh, to Babylon and Persia and, and their rule, and that, that's going to be this seditious nation. And so the, the work is stopped. Uh, and then ultimately, God, through the work of Darius and others, allows pagan kings, these kings that don't love him, that don't worship him, God orchestrates in their hearts the ability for not only these people, these exiles that, that are coming back to Jerusalem to return, but also to truly rebuild the temple to glorify and honor God. One of the things that we've seen emerge the last few weeks in the text is truly this, that, that God is at work in history through his covenant people and for them in the midst of these very pagan kings. These people that seemingly rule the world in a political sense in every single way, God, his hand is at work in them. We're going to see even more of that today as we really focus in on chapter 7 and look at who Ezra is. We're going to start by looking at verses 1 through 6. It says this, Now after this, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Sariah, son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, son of Shalom, son of Zadok, son of Ahitub, son of Amariah, son of Azariah, son of Meariah, son of Zerariah, son of Uzi, son of Buki, son of Abishua, son of Phinehas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the chief priest. This Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given, and the king granted him all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, here's the thing. We're going to talk fundamentally in this, in this opening section about verse 6. Uh, and so it might seem like that I'm just trying to do like these weird you know, Hebrew, Arabic gymnastics every week by saying all these names. Because um, look, it's terribly unfun to try to say these names. Um, it makes me happy that my name's not Uzi or Buki or Mariah, right? But ultimately, th this is challenging. Th there is a, a deep point, though, in, in why we would read these things. Um, why, why do we see genealogies? Why do we see lists in God's text? So, so you open the, the, the Gospel of Matthew, what's the first thing you see? Genealogy, this giant list of names. All of these names that culminate in Jesus. You get a picture of a lineage, a story of real people that existed in real places, a number of whom had really terrible names, but they're people nonetheless. Even more, what we find in this is this, this really beautiful picture that we're presented with, uh, and if we read it in a cursory way, we'll miss it, but this is, this is verse 5. Look, it says, son of Abishua, Son of Phineas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the chief priest. For those of you with, with any uh, biblical historical background of the Old Testament, this, this is Aaron. It's that Aaron. It's connected, descendant of Moses like Aaron. It's a big deal. What's happening here in the book of Ezra is the presentation that, that Ezra is connected to this long line, not just of people in a bloodline, but people in a faith line. People who have trusted God or sought to trust God and ultimately, more than that, seen his covenant love expressed, displayed, and committed to them. In those few words, the, the recognition that we get Aaron, the chief priest, illustrated to us, drawn out to us, here's what we see. This big idea emerges in the midst of this. This is a reminder that, that right from the start of this section that God is always with his people. The recognition of Aaron points back to a history of God's faithfulness. 
fire and a cloud going through a, a split Red Sea. The giving of the law, rescue from the, from the dominion, from, from the, 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 the captivity, the first set of bondage that these people would face in Egypt. This is a picture of historically God's faithful covenant love to his people. And so for a people that Ezra leads, and that's what's happening here in chapter 7 and 8, Ezra is leading a new wave, another group of, of free captives, people that are going back to Jerusalem from Babylon. He's painting this picture from the start that God is with them, that God is with them in this journey. They've, they've experienced captivity. They felt pain. They've been tempted to fall into new ways of worship and idolatry. And they followed through with that. They did that. And yet God is still pursuing them. He's not left his people. Um, look into verse 6 and you'll see um, Ezra is significantly important. Um, highly regarded in the Jewish tradition. There is a very real sense uh, that there's this connotation surrounding him about this, this, this truly being a second type of Moses. A second exodus where God's people are being redeemed again out of captivity in the same way the Israelites were freed from Egypt. Uh, we also get this understanding that, that he is incredibly talented uh, and skilled even with God's law. Look at verse 6. It says, a scribe, this is describing Ezra, a scribe skilled in the law of Moses. So he's a scholar and he's an expert one at that. We know that because the word skilled here ultimately means rapid. It means rapid. So, so the connotation, the idea this presents is that Ezra is one to whom the understanding of Torah law, the understanding of God's covenant faithfulness, the understanding of how he's called his people to obedience, this came really easy to him. And so we might be tempted by reading this thinking, that, oh, well, then there are just people that are just, you know, that are just good at stuff in a way other people aren't. So Ezra's just good at, at God's word. He's good at obey, obedience. He's good at following the Lord uh, when, when others aren't. But that's only part of the equation. We're going to look into verse 10 in a second uh, and see that, that Ezra possessed not only a natural ability to understand cognitively, to, to really process and recognize God's word, but he also possessed the heart for it. But in this moment, we're left with somebody who just has a genuine, natural aptitude. Um, do you have this friend or know this person that is just good at whatever they touch? Like, no matter what they do, they're just good at it. Um, like, so I, I have one of these friends, and he is the guy that, um, you know, you take him to play golf, and he doesn't even really know about golf. Like, he's not coming with any clubs. This guy, like, is on the way kind of trying to, I mean, he's, he's like, he's watching on TV, right? Like, he understands what golf is, but he has no idea about functionally how to swing a golf club. He's not the guy that, that, uh, that just really understands the game, not just the etiquette, but just, like, how to play golf. And then you take this guy, and he beats you by 20 strokes, and then you don't understand, and you get angry, and you break your clubs, and you throw them in the water, and you go get a new hobby. Um, I've got this friend. He's just good at everything that he touches. Like, and this guy, this is a real person. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm not being facetious. This guy, I didn't break the clubs or throw them in the water, but this guy is a real person, and he legitimately said to me, like, a few holes in, he's like, I mean, we're just trying to put the ball in, in, in the hole. Like, that's it. Uh, and now you hate him, too. Um, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> look, like, there are some people that just have this natural, innate ability to just kind of pick up stuff and to do it well. There's a sense in which this is happening with Ezra, but we're going to see in, in verse 10 that there's something more, that there's something even deeper that characterizes his relationship. And we need to understand this, and we need to understand the picture of what it looks like to be a faithful follower of the Lord because it doesn't look like just sheer gifting. It doesn't look like sheer ability. There is much, much more at the heart of our worship. Um, three other really specific things to note uh, relative to verse 6 that are cornerstones within this book thematically uh, and helpful for us to understand the role of who Ezra is and ultimately today for you and I, how we can live lives and how honestly I believe we're called to live lives that reflect the life of Ezra. These three things to note. One, uh, the law that he's so skilled in is given. Look back into verse 6. 
He's a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. So this person that possesses this natural ability to seemingly understand God's word and to trust him, we're confronted with this immediate recognition this is not of himself. God has given guidance and he's given instruction and the hope of life in his word. And Ezra is skilled, but only in as far as what God has given to him. This word, this, this even, even down to the level of the heart, this trust, this desire, this compulsion to help people follow the law of the Lord is something that has been endowed to him. It's something that is given to him, that's been entrusted to him, not something that he possessed on his own. Uh, this is an indication at the core that people, even the best of people, are needy. They're needy. You and I are needy. Ezra is presented as this person with great skill, yet we're given this recognition that everything that he has comes to him. It's not something that he sought out or to possess. Um, it also is a picture, uh, like others that we'll see in this chapter, that Ezra is a part of this story. He is not the end of the story. He is merely a part of what we'll come to see is God's story. We see in verse 6, it says this, The king granted him all that he asked. He's in a place of vulnerability. He's in a place of weakness. The story is not about him. The law, everything that he has is given to him. Here's the second thing. Um, the hand of the Lord. Um, you're going to see this phrase a ton. Look back into verse 6. and It says, in the, And the king granted him, meaning Ezra, all that he asked... For the hand of the Lord, his God, was on him. The hand of the Lord was on him. Verse 6, if you have your copy of God's Word in front of you, if you look in chapter 7 right here, you're going to see it in verse 6. You're going to see it in verse 9. You're going to see it in verse 28. If you look into chapter 8, I think you're going to see it in yeah, 18, 22, and 31. You're going to see this, this phrase continually emerge. Look to that and see that, and you'll begin to see that this is truly the theme of God's story in Ezra. Is that the hand of the Lord is at work. Last week, we really focused on chapters 3 through 6, and we saw it in the works, or in the hearts, rather, of Cyrus and Artaxerxes and Darius. We see God's hand at work in the midst of all of these kings, all of these people who would call themselves, even Artaxerxes in chapter 7 will say at the, the, at, the, at the start of a letter that you see in 11 through 26, he'll call himself king of kings. He'll use this language to describe his kingship as, as the greatest authority that exists on the earth from a political standpoint. You'll see him describe himself as that. And yet God's hand is at work functioning and fashioning all of history through these kings, even though they don't love him, they don't serve him, they don't intimately know him. God is preserving, protecting Israel and the forthcoming gospel of Jesus Christ in its full revelation through what he's doing in pagan kings. The hand of the Lord is at work. God has been rejected by his people they turn to him and trust him. They reject him again through unrighteousness. And this is the story of God's people. And yet he doesn't remove his hand from them. The hand of the Lord is at work upon them. So the law is given. We see that. The hand of the Lord is at work. Uh, and then this third thing I think is really, really important for us to see. Um, it says, this Ezra went up from Babylonia. So Ezra comes from Babylon. And yet he's this person who's this skilled teacher. He's this scribe. He's this person who is deeply, uh, deeply not just aware, but intricately just formed by God's word, by his laws, by his statutes, by Torah, by an understanding of the God that has come to his people through Abraham. So when we sing things like, God of Abraham, you're the God of covenant, Ezra is intimately acquainted with this. He knows the faithfulness of God, and yet Ezra is incredibly unique in this way. Ezra is not from Jerusalem. Ezra is not from Israel. He comes from Babylon. 
that gives us this beautiful picture. This is the third thing. We're not where we come from. We're not where we come from. Ezra, this one who loves God deeply, who loves the law, who loves the Lord, this happens not in Jerusalem. All of this is formed within him, his scribal abilities. All of these things come from a person who's raised in, formed in, shaped in Babylon. In the midst of this evil empire, God transforms this person into one who deeply trusts him in order that he might lead his people. That ought to give you and I hope. No matter where we're from. Um, look, I, I think some of us come from pedigrees of these families that have trusted and followed the Lord for ages. And I'm not, just, I'm not just talking about I've been in Sunday school ever since I can remember, right? Or, you know, I, I first came to church in mom's tummy kind of thing, right? I'm, I'm not talking about just that. I'm talking about people whose, whose families exemplify the gospel in the deepest of ways. And then a number of us come from families that not only perhaps don't resemble that, they might look like the antithesis of that. They might look like the opposite of that. Ezra comes from the darkest of places to bring light to God's people. That's the beauty of the transformative God that we serve. Um, so, the law is given, uh, the hand of the Lord is upon uh, him, and then helping us to understand that, that where he's from doesn't define him, and it doesn't define us either. Um, let's look into the next few verses. Uh, Ezra 7, 7 through 10 says this, And there went up also to Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes the king, some of the people of Israel and some of the priests and Levites, the singers and gatekeepers, and the temple servants, and Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylonia. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem. You see this phrase again. For the good hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Um, here we're presented, again, with this recognition of, of Babylon being the place that Ezra comes from and the fact that the hand of the Lord is on him. And now we see who Ezra is, not just as someone that's skilled and has some sort of cerebral or intellectual competence for God's word, but instead something deeper. He has a heart for it. Look into verse 10. It says, For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord. Studying with his heart, not just his mind. His heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Um, here's the unique position of where Ezra is. Um, you'll, you'll see in later verses, particularly toward the end of 7 and, and 18, where, where he recognizes that there will be attack there will be animosity toward God's people and coming back to Jerusalem. There will be people that will seek to thwart what God is doing in them. We've already seen the fact that, uh, you know, you've got people that are saying, look, th these people don't need to build. They're going to be a seditious nation. They're not going to pay tribute uh, to, to, the, to the kingdom, to the province beyond the river, right? To this, to this, uh, to this Babylonian empire. They're not going to give us money. These people are evil, and so let's make them stop the work. And then yet God overcomes. The decree is recovered. People recognize that, that, that God has called his people there through Cyrus. They're allowed to build. This, this people, these, these Israelites, have, have this, this just innate ability to find struggle at every turn. There's always something that is coming for them. And at some point, you got to think that there would be some strategy. <laughs> at some point, you would think that, 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 that there would be someone that would step forward and say, hey, look, you know, maybe we need to develop a front from a militaristic standpoint. Maybe we, need to, maybe we need to be people that are on the offensive. Maybe we need to be prepared for all the onslaughts that are coming against us. And here's what Ezra does. We get this picture, this description of all of those going. And in, in so many other accounts, you would see people that would say, well, and then they're fortified by this, and they're carrying these types of folks. And yet, the premise for Ezra is that he set his heart to study the law of God. 
and to do it and to teach his statutes and his rules in Israel. This is Ezra's plan to restore people to life, to bring them out of captivity, to bring them out of bondage. It doesn't center on a military strategy. It doesn't center on some ability to connive and deceive or, 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 to, or to kind of usurp or go around the attacks that will come. Instead, his focus is supremely on the word of God. It's, it's devotion to God that he sees as that which will free God's people. Look at what Ezra does also with uh, the order. This is really important. It says, For Ezra has set his heart to study the law of the Lord first, second, to do it, and then third, to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. So he's leading people out that they might have freedom, that they might have life in God. Does it by knowing who God is, by doing, by living out God's word. And then finally, the third thing is this, teaches it. This correlates really, really well with this passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Um, that, that's probably in your Bible. If you turn to 2 Corinthians 5 right now, it probably says something like the ministry of reconciliation. Um, I want you to read this. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Uh, and, and see how these things correlate and what Paul talks about uh, for those of us that live life like you and I on the other side of the cross, what it looks like to live out God's word in this manner of, of knowing and doing and being. This is 2 Corinthians 5, 11 through 20. Uh, it's a big chunk, but this is really important. Uh, it says this, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not committing ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore... If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the very word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Here's what's so, so profound and so beautiful um, about God's Word. Um, there, there's this moment where these two texts just, just coalesce. They just fit like a glove together. Um, when we get this understanding from verse 10 that, that Ezra's heart is one that he studies the Word of the Lord, that he goes and does the work of the Lord, that, that he lives justly according to that Word, and then finally, that he teaches others, it directly ties to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.11 when he says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. So the knowing that Paul is talking about really encompasses not just a, a knowledge, but also an experience. So this is the knowing and doing component together. Paul is saying, you know the Lord... You've experienced him. You've heard the truth of the gospel. Lived it out. You know him. You've known him experientially. Now, he's saying, look, we persuade others. 
It's this teaching. It's this understanding that it seeks to be imparted. Paul is saying, look, the love of Christ compels me. I can't not tell you and plead with you, ultimately, to use a word like to implore you to say, by all means, pay full attention to this and this only. Be reconciled to God. This is a picture that we, we sometimes don't see in the Old Testament of God manifesting his grace through a person like Ezra. Ezra is seeking to implore God's people to return to him in heart, to trust him, to understand that he is God of covenant, the God of Abraham. He has been faithful very age to very age, he has always been with them and he's always been for them, even in exile, even in chastening them. God has been for and with, even back to Aaron and beyond, his people. God is using Ezra to seek to help them be reconciled to God for this relationship of Israel to be renewed. Um, here's the reality. I can, I can read Ezra as, as this ancient text. I can read it as something that, that is deeply historical and vastly removed from my 2021 context. Or I can look to the reality of Scripture and see that God has called a New Testament Christian like myself to be a part of reconciliation to see people come to Christ and to experience life in Him as we know God's Word and proclaim this truth, as we do it, as we live it out amongst our neighbors, and then finally we articulate it, we teach it to them, teach it to them plainly with our very lives. And I get the benefit of looking back at Ezra and seeing God's been doing this all along. He's been seeking to reconcile his people to himself all along. And he does it through Israel. He does it through this small nation, this nation that's not known for its greatness. It's actually known for it, 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 it being few of small people. And now at this place in history, we are seeing a remnant. We are seeing the leftovers of, the few people in faithfulness of, and it's a couple of waves of people that are coming back from Babylonian captivity, but it's a little and a little of what was already pretty little. In the world's eyes, this is this very small group of people, and yet this person is following the Lord in order that the world... Hear this, that the world might be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. This is a part of your history. If you know and love and trust Jesus Christ, this is a part of your story. So much so that as we talked about last week, you are in it much more than it's in you. You're a part of this. The proclamation of the gospel that you've experienced, this ministry of reconciliation that like, all of us have been a part of, because if you know Jesus Christ, you were a part of that ministry. Somebody proclaimed the gospel to you, and then you were reconciled to God as His Spirit transformed your heart and regenerated you and made you new. You were a part of that. I was a part of that. And it's because of the faithfulness, the covenant faithfulness of Ezra. All right, Ezra 7, 11 through 26. Um, this is a letter that's written in Aramaic from the king in the language of official correspondence. Here's what it does. Um, you're going to see a few things emerge here. Historically, these are really important. Um, Ezra is authorized to go to Jerusalem to ensure the observance of the law. And you may say, well, why would a pagan king desire for the law to be observed? Um, two real reasons. One, there, there is within him a fear, and I wouldn't say a, a, a religious or spiritual fear in, in, akin to reference, but just a, just a practical fear um, that this God, if this God turns out to be the one, the God of heaven, as, as Artaxerxes claims that he potentially is, and says that to Ezra, then he doesn't want to do any wrong by him. doesn't want to cross the God that might be the God. 
all right? But here's the second, the underlying and ultimately overarching thing. It's this, that the hand of the Lord is at work. God's hand is at work in history through him. So he authorizes Ezra to go to Jerusalem to ensure observance of the law. Um, In 11 through 26, you're also going to see that he's given supplies for sacrifices and vessels are given. There's provision for all of these extra things and that a judicial system would be set up so people would know the law that they're being instructed to follow. All of these things... All of these things are, are compounding, beautiful examples of, evidences of God's mighty hand at work through history. And then in verses 27 and 28, and these will be on the screen, but if you haven't looked look down, you'll see um, Ezra finally speaks. So everything's been in narrative form thus far. And in 27 and 28, Ezra speaks, and he says this, Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers. Who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem and who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty officers. I took courage for the hand of the Lord my God was on me and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Here's what we see. Um, from the start, the God of our fathers who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king. So up, up until this moment, um, look, in chapter 7, we understand who Ezra is. The book for whom, uh, or for the book that is named Ezra, we, we finally see him emerge in chapter 7. But even up to this point, all of it, every single bit of it is narrative. It's all descriptive of him. And now Ezra finally speaks. Here's why this is really, really important. He recognizes that God is the one that is moving the hearts of kings. He recognizes it. He sees it. He saw it with his own eyes and he testifies of it. He says that this is happening with his own lips. So that you and I can benefit. So that we can understand it. This is what we sang earlier. Let my heart learn when you speak a word, it will come to pass. His heart learned it, but his eyes learned it. His ears learned it. All of his faculties learned that when God speaks a word, it will happen. He sees these prophecies. He sees Israel's restoration coming in the most unlikely of ways from the most unfaithful and unsatisfactory and people a god or a king rather that is characterized as someone who not only doesn't know god but doesn't long to in any way shape or form and views himself as a god as receives that these things are coming to pass he testifies for you and me to for so that we could know so that we could believe so that we could understand that what god is doing in history will come to pass if he says it will. If God says it, it will happen. And this is a beautiful picture for us to understand what it looks like to trust the wisdom of faithful people who have gone before us. He says it so that we can know. And then in our experience, when you and I have these moments where we see God's word come to pass, where we see the things that God promises to do come to pass, we can encourage each other. We can share with one another. We can tell one another. So, so last week when I told you that I saw, I saw a miracle happen, several of you, I've told you about this, and you know it, and now, you've, now you're encouraged by it. You've experienced it. Your heart in that moment can learn that when God speaks a word, that it comes to pass, that it happens. He does that for us in moments when we fail to recognize him, when we struggle to believe him. He gives us the recognition that God is so deeply at work, that he's so committed to you and me, that he has directed the course of history through people who have vehemently opposed him so that you and I could be reconciled to God. That is the power of what's happening in this moment. That God directs the heart of kings. Ezra has that first-hand experience. Here's the next thing. 
um, the courage that he describes. He says in 28, I took courage for the hand of the Lord my God was on me and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. Um, the courage is directly a result, says, for the hand of the Lord my God. The reason he has courage is because God, God's hand was on him. God's hand was with him. It's God's provision that's ena- that enables us to trust. This is what it's always been. The way that, that you and I recognize God is through his benefits, through, through what he has done for us. Uh, I, th- I think we've, we might have talked about this a few weeks ago, but I, I personally believe this is really theologically formative and important for us to grasp. Uh, there are times in our church life where we say this phrase, where we say, um, you know, God, we just worship you for who you are. We just worship you for who you are. And, and in a sense, there's some, some measure in which we can do that, but the reality is that doesn't just happen. You don't know how to worship God for who he is, just who he is, because you don't know him apart from his benefits. I want you to think about this. You and I do not know him apart from his benefits. We can't say that God is gracious and merciful and kind and just and benevolent and holy and loving and all of these things unless we experience those things. We have to know them in order to articulate that we know who God is. This is the beauty and the picture of who God is, is that You can't even know him apart from his goodness. And not his goodness in some like, you know, blanket way or kind of casting a net out, but his goodness to you. To you. That while you were a sinner, while you were not like sinking, but while you were dead in your trespasses and sins, at the bottom, Christ died for you. The picture that we're given in Ezra 7 is is of one who is following the Lord in order that God's people might be reconciled. And we're given this this short little kind of genealogy, this picture of sorts, this list of people. And here's what that little list ought to tell you. There are people that have come long before you, and they're a part of your story. They're a part of your faith story. And because of the faithfulness of Ezra, God uses him in the life of Israel so that you and I can experience the God of Israel and we experience it through the word, Jesus Christ himself. Um, Ezra 8. Briefly, just kind of want to touch on a couple of things. Um, we're getting the picture now in Ezra 8 of this second wave of people that return with him, those that are going to help in a priestly manner. Uh, and in verses, uh, in chapter 8, verses 21 through 23, you're going to see Ezra's heart as one of humility and dependence on the Lord. You're going to see that phrase, the hand of the Lord again. So where we last left off in chapter 6, last week we saw this picture uh, of the temple constructed, their, their celebration. God has caused his people uh, to thrive. Now there's a new group, a new wave of people coming, and we see the provision as Ezra does lead them in at the end of chapter 8, and they arrive, and they make sacrifices to the Lord. His hand is on them. Um, This is reason to celebrate, to be excited at this moment in the story. Um, And I can't think of anything more appropriate than to just buzzkill the whole thing right here at the end. Um, Chapter 9 and chapter 10 uh, are are some some of, I think, uh, the more challenging text in Scripture. Um, To really wrestle with and recognize and understand the brokenness, the pain, and just how unfaithful Israel is. There are portions of it, I think, that are, that are at least personally really hard to read. Because I see myself in that story. I see my unfaithful or my lack of faithfulness. I see my inability to trust, and I recognize that the picture of Israel is... A picture of me. And if I'm to be so bold, a picture of you too. People who long to trust the Lord and yet turn to other things. Um, Could we be encouraged by a God that so faithfully and so lovingly pursues us in the midst of our disobedience that he gives someone to us that would teach the word? 
that would teach the word to people and give us a model of what it looks like to live out this life of reconciliation. This is what it looks like for for you and me to live this Ezra-type life in 2021 in the world that you live in right here. This is what you're called to do. Know the Lord's Scripture. Study the Word. Set your heart on God's Word. Not as something to do, but in recognition of what God has done for you. I've grown up too much of my life thinking that this is a a playbook. That this is a rule book. Are there rules? Are there statutes? Are there places where, where we're called to lean in and trust God's holy law? Absolutely. But you know what this is? This is a picture of what God has done for you and I in creation and redemption through Christ and the restoration, the life of the church, what that looks like for you and I. This isn't just a do kind of thing, because here's the reality. You can't do it if you don't know it. You and I cannot love God and live unto him if we don't understand who he is through his word. So we have to dive into and study it. And it sounds to you probably like I'm saying, I I think this guy's just trying to tell us to read the Bible. Like, that seems like pretty basic and like the answer I give at church for most things and have since I was five, right? Here's the reality. I'm telling you to read the Bible. <laughs> like, really read it. Like, actually dive into Scripture and see what God has done for you. This is the heart of where Ezra comes from. He wants to study God's Word so that he can go do it. He can go be obedient, that he can be this light in the darkness and live out the purpose of God in his own life that he would, not perfectly, but trust him in such a way that people would see God's faithfulness and then he would teach them. You're called to be Ezra. You're called to have a ministry of reconciliation. I don't know, I don't know what it looks like. For a number of you, I do know your story. I know, I know where you work. I know, I know where you live. <laughs> These things sound so creepy to say, but I mean it in the most loving way. Um, I, know, I, know your, I know your story. And I know some of the people that, that you're called to help see reconciled to God. To help see reconciled to God. How do you do that? How do you help people experience the love, those benefits from God? This is a very practical, and it might sound simple, but I think it's a beautiful and helpful way to start. The picture that we're given is to understand God and who He is and fall in love with Him through His Word. That it would be our heart, as it was Ezra's heart. That we would go do it, that we would live it out, that we would genuinely practice obedience. That we would do it. And that would yield, subsequently, this desire to go teach it to people. To go teach people who God is and what He's done in our life. Um, Look, Paxton talked today about just worship as an identity marker. Um, and, And here's the reality. We sing this song earlier. We say, I will build my life upon your love. It is a firm foundation. A couple of things emerge here when we sing these words that really resonate with this text. The build our life is the doing. But that doing has to come from somewhere. And here's where it comes from. Your love is a firm foundation. So that love that compels Paul to, to, to say, the love that, that we've experienced in God, I can't help but tell you, I can't help but implore you to come to Jesus Christ, to be reconciled to God. It's that love that enables us to build our life on the gospel. And then finally, we're drawn to that other lyric of what it says, lead me in your love to those around me. That happens Once you begin to build your life, once you begin to construct your life around the reality of who God is. In Ezra, we're given this picture. Could we be people that are people so deeply of the word that we study it, that we understand and we recognize who God is? Not not just by 
reading and seeing words come in our head, but by God's Spirit, asking God's Spirit to transform us through His Word, and then we're going to go do it. We're going to go live it out. We're going to obediently seek to follow Him. And then finally, would that just compel us to where we can't help but tell others about the goodness of God? That's what Ezra's life looks like. And it was a picture of restoration. You and I are called to that same restoration in the places where we are today. Um, I'm going to ask our worship team to come. We're going to have a time of response. Uh, and I'd ask you to bow your head uh, and just prepare uh, to worship in these last couple moments. Um, uh, and I just want to say this. Um, look, I, I think we all have natural tendencies and habits and desires um, to, to, to worship in different ways. There are things that environmentally we're conditioned to. Um, but you just have freedom in this place if you want to stand Stand. If you want to sing, sing. If you want to pray, pray. If you want to sit, sit. Um, however you feel like you need to respond, be obedient to the Lord and seek to do that. Um, here's the next thing I would say. Um, if you don't know Jesus Christ, I implore you, be reconciled to God. My, my, not challenge to get better, not not. Your life could be better. No, you could have new life in Jesus Christ. The old can be gone. The new had come. The guilt, the shame, the sin that you've walked with, you can leave that behind in trusting Jesus Christ. And then I would, if that's not where you are, if you know Jesus, and I know many of you do, to find yourself in this place, um, ask God to help you fall in love with his word and that you would be somebody that could be a part of the ministry of reconciliation. Um, we're going to have a time where we're going to sing and respond however you feel led. And I'm going to be here up front. If, if, uh, I know it's 2021, so uh, like we, most people don't walk forward anymore. I get that. Um, but you need to know that we're here for you as a church. If, if you want to come in this moment, if you want to come after, um, we're here for you to receive you. And we love you and we care for you. Um, so pray with me as we enter this time. Um, God, as we, as, we, as we close the time of worship, we long to respond to your word. Will you make us people, Father, um, God, that are, that are pictures of faithful servants of yours like Ezra, one who longs to, to see your people reconciled to you, to faithfully love and trust you. God, would you make us in our little place that you've given us within our families, with our, uh, within our uh, co-workers, the life that we live. God, would you make us people that long to love your word, to live it out, God, and to tell it to others that they might know you. Pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.